of Commentary Hour. Today I'm doing a show myself, and I'm going to do a show that focuses upon positive resolution and solutions, if you choose to find merit in them, that I've learned throughout my life, including when it seems like nothing's going to work and it's very bleak, things are tough, you don't have a support system, and yet you think of ideas that other people just haven't come up with. As a result, you end up learning a positive lesson lesson from a negative experience. So, we're going to do that today. Now, this is actually part two. I haven't aired part one, and I won't. But on part two, which I pre-recorded yesterday, for tonight, and then I realized I didn't have enough time after talking about how do we get to where we have such economic calamities in our lives, and I did a whole thorough history of where this started, how at one time in America we had community, and then within that community the rich and the middle class and the working class and the poor all lived together. We went to the same schools, whether if you were Catholic, went to Catholic school, but Jews and, and Protestants went to public schools. Nobody wanted to put their kid in a private school because there were no private schools. And the wealthiest people in town, they lived on Market Street. Old, old uh, street, well, the first in our, our town of Parkersburg. But their houses weren't mansions, a little larger than the average person. And they drove, uh, they drove nice cars. They drive a Pontiac, uh, a Lincoln, uh, sometimes a Cadillac. But they didn't brag and they didn't preen. They didn't try to show you they were better than anyone. Because after all, they weren't. Two of my friends were in that class. But you wouldn't know there was a class because Billy Mildred and I played basketball in his, in his, outside of his garage. And, and he was just a heck of a nice guy, but his father ran a bank. Steve Haig, his father was a top lawyer. These were good people. We were friends. And they didn't look at whether or not your father was a carpenter or a business person or a salesperson. You were a human being. And we cared about one another. We cared so much about one another that on a Saturday, for example, you would see young people like myself, 10, 12 years old, taking a lawnmower down the street to the corner, around the corner, back up, and around the next corner and back. It took about three hours. But the idea was, as my mother said, if you have to ask someone for help, you've asked the wrong person. So the idea was, Look to see who needs a lawn cut who may be too old or frail to do it. So nobody ever had to call and say, can you come and cut my grass? But we did. And we didn't ask for any money, but they'd always give us a dime or a quarter. It was a lot back then. I was a paper boy also. And people around holidays would give you extra little. And you knew that it would take one, two, three years of working these odd jobs. But you would be able to get a bike, and the key bike was the Schwinn. And you parked it outside, you just put it outside your door, right? And no one locked a door. 
I never once in my life remember growing up that a single person locked the door because we trusted one another. So we had trust. We had values. And those values were common values, no matter what your place in life was. If you went to college or not, you still, most people came back and worked there. You had, uh, you had for the working persons, you had a shovel factory, the largest in America, the OAMs. But if you were better skilled as an engineer, you'd work at DuPont. That's, those were the highest paying jobs. But there were three jobs for every person. We had choices. But we also were expected to give some loyalty to where we worked. And there was lots of socializing. Covered dish dinners at the schools, at churches, and raffles. Everybody was doing something to contribute to making it a cohesive, decent place to live and grow up. And one of the things that we all prided ourselves in is caring about others. So if someone needed a plumber, mom, who was at the First Christian Church as a secretary, would call a plumber and say, this person needs plumber. There was no money exchanged. You just went over and you helped the person. So the poor had a really good safety net. They had other people who had skills would come in, wouldn't ask for anything, and nobody talked about it. It's just, you get the job done. Now compare that to today. Compare the building I lived in New York for 28 years, where it was rare for a person to actually say hello in an elevator, eyes down. They were in their own world, and their world was not your world. There was no neighborhood. There was no, think of growing up in a town, if you saw the movie The Last Picture Show, about 40 years ago. It starred Ben Johnson and uh, Sybil Shepherd, and uh, it showed a small Texas town. And what it's like growing up, and you could have just, that was a cookie cutter for almost every small town, including neighbors like the Bronx. You had your block, or two blocks, or three blocks. Those were your friends and family. All that's gone now, and a lot of us miss a lot of that because there was a there was a cohesive harmony that we all enjoyed. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have debt. You had a little book you got from the bank. The bank would tell you how much interest you made. Frequently, it was 5%. As a result, the idea was see how much you could save. People saved because our parents were the greatest generation. They came through the Great Depression and World War II. That's 16 years of privations and suffering and risk. And... Uh, we prided ourselves in what we were able to build because in America, we built the best in the world. We manufactured, we created, and we shared. We shared enough that our Marshall Plan rebuilt Italy, rebuilt Germany, and rebuilt Japan to allow them to thrive. And then everything changed. And I, I'm not going to go into it now, but I went into it on the other, which you can go to the archives and download that uh, particular show. And I showed you who caused everything to change when they no longer wanted to be the head of a bank. They wanted to sell out, go to New York, have a big mansion. And it all happened at once within 15 years, from 1975 to 1990. The dynamic aggressives, the people who were the leaders within a society, they left. And now their kids had to go to private schools. And then the whole focus was, how much can I make for myself? And that's where the equity partnerships came, these economic parasites. And when you see all these businesses like Macy's and, and uh, Circuit City and Toys R Us, 
linen and things. There's thousands of these who were bought up and then exploited and drained. That's what Mitt Romney's Bain Capital did with a lot of companies. Well, he's worth almost a billion dollars. What about the tens of thousands of workers who are just adaptive and supportive of the common good? Everything in a rich person's life, everything in Jeff Bezos' life, everything in all these people's lives, that have billions and 20 homes or whatever it is, and spend in, in such a grossly indecadent way. You think they're happy? I don't. I think they're all insecure, thinking that just the next purchase, the next billion, I'm going to feel better about myself. But they don't, because you see it in the contempt they have for the people who made everything for them, the workers. Do they share that? Never. As a result, the working class in America has shrunk, it's denigrated, it's ridiculed, it's mocked, it is hit by those in power as being insignificant, or as Dr. Harari said, you know, worthless and useless eaters. And yet everything in his life, everything in Klaus Schwab's life, from his tie to his socks to his shirt to the desk to the telephone to his glasses, everything in his life was made by a person he's in contempt of. The same is true for all these billionaires. So they want to create an artificial utopia. They want to create smart cities. They want to create artificial everything that they can patent and control. Even today, Elon Musk asked for volunteers to have a hole cut in their skull to implant one of his neurological, uh, artificially intelligent uh, communications. Well, who's going to do that? He'll probably have more people line up to have that done based upon false promises. So we have a nation divided. We've been balkanized, we're polarized, and a lot of people are going tribal. And that's unfortunate. And then we have our debt, something that we do not recognize, we lie about. We say, well, our debt is, is 138% of our total gross domestic product, all the income coming in. Oh, we're not that bad. Yeah, we are, because they lie. The total U.S. debt is $102 trillion. The national debt is 33.7 trillion, state debt 1.3, local debt 2.4 trillion, total personal debt is 25 trillion, that's $74,600 per person. Student loans is 39,700 per student, 1.8 trillion. Credit card debt is 7,400 per person. And then of course you have your unfunded or underfunded uh, entitlements like Medicare, 40 trillion and uh, other unfunded entitlements come to $211 trillion. And how much do other countries own of our debt? They buy our debt, treasuries, $7.8 trillion. There was a time when America led the world in trade surplus. We made so many items of such high quality that everyone around the world wanted them. And they were reasonably priced. And as a result, we had huge trade surplus, meaning we were getting that money in. Guess what, as of today, our trade deficit is? $1.1 trillion in deficit. That's debt. And these corporations, they can buy companies, monopolize them without any hassle. They actually owe $16.3 trillion. So don't look at what they're worth. Look at what they owe. And we have, we have a lot of people who it would seem are very wealthy. But they're actually not when you compare to how much 
that they have. So what is the actual amount of debt in America today? Take it all in. All in, $330 trillion. That is 741.6% of debt to gross domestic product or income. 741.6%. By the way, in 2021, it was $828.7 trillion. So that's, that is just astronomical. So we're bankrupt. We're screwed. It's over once the dollar collapses, and I believe the dollar will collapse within the next 24 to 36 months because the rise of the mixed East Asian group with BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. South Africa doesn't count. It's, it's, it's a disaster. But now, in January, just a couple of months, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Mexico, uh, Argentina, and other countries are coming in. That means they're folding in their gross domestic product. They're trading together. They're creating their own banks. Oh, and banks? You know what Barack Obama did? It was on Christmas Eve. Nobody paid attention. He made it so that there's a bail-in policy. So when you put your money in a bank, you think you can go and get it. And right now you can. But if a bank fails, all the money, including all your deposits, all the money in safe service, the bank, all of it belongs to the bank. And you get a little tiny infinitesimal percent of a stock because now you're an investor in the bank. And guess what happens legally? If you're an investor in the bank, then the federal uh, department, the FDIC, that's supposed to bury out to $250,000, well, it doesn't have that money. And the Fed couldn't print that amount of money. Why? Because not only when one bank fails, all of them fail. Why? Because those banks, without you knowing it, accumulated massive amounts of derivatives. How much? The notional value of outstanding over-the-counter derivatives rose to $632 trillion at the end of June 2022, up uh, from $598 trillion at the end of 2021. And the largest 25 banks control 100% of that. But just to give you an idea, J.P. Morgan Chase, $37 trillion. Goldman Sachs, $26 trillion. Citigroup, $32 trillion. Bank of America, $16 And that's what they would get reimbursed for. That's not how much they have. They're like J.P. Morgan has $60 trillion. So then if one bank fails of these, they all fail. But while we're bragging for decades about the U.S. dollar supreme, it's not. As of just a week ago, the, uh, uh, the BRICS nations exceeded the, uh, the seven major countries, and they control about half of the world's population. And they're building things for these people. They're bringing factories. They're building, bringing in jobs. They're increasing the quality of life all over the world. So I guess 70 other countries want to be a part. We will be the poor beggar on the street within three years because everything you own is tied to the dollar. The stock, bonds, your real estate, everything. So what do you think that's going to be worth when the dollar is no longer the primary reserve currency, but mixed currencies like the yuan and, and the ruble and others are? Well, let's hope it doesn't happen, but it is going to. It's inevitable. 
So what can we do about it? Where's the good news in this? By the way, I went into great detail about how much we're in debt and debt sharks, companies that thrive when you can't pay a bill. So what can you do? Let's now go to the positive side of this negative equation. Because if you keep playing their game, you're going to lose. So what I believe we should do is the following. Oh, and by the way, we're really thriving because we only have 3.9% official unemployment rate. What about all the people that couldn't find a job and stopped getting unemployment? They're still unemployed, right? Yes. Do they count the figures? Oh, no. No, they don't. The shadow statistics show that 24.7% of Americans are unemployed. That's the real unemployment rate. That means just about one-fourth one of the entire American population is out of a job. But you would have known that had you looked at the figures about the impact of inflation and how the housing market is just stalled because an 8% mortgage rates is going to go higher. How bad is it? Well, let me give you an idea. What do you think the average median income now is in the United States? $36,000 a year. How many Americans live below the poverty line? 37.2 million. That's 11.4% of the population. How many children live in dire poverty? Surely we're a nation that's compassionate, wouldn't want the children to starve, go hungry, live on the streets. No, just the opposite. 11.5 million children live in dire poverty, and no one seems to care about them, especially the governments. So, I'm not going to go further with the figures because I put all those figures in my report from yesterday that's on the, there, but we got 705 billionaires. We have 23.2 millionaires, and uh, but 20% of them inherited their wealth, so you can only imagine how much they care about you. And... Uh, by the way, if you earn $540,000, that puts you in the 1% of earners in the United States. So, here's the good news. Here's what you can do if you choose to. First of all, most important, stop buying their stuff. Stop subscribing to the New York Times and subscribing to their cable systems. Uh, stop buying their clothes. Stop shopping in Whole Foods and their other markets. Stop buying stuff you don't need. Remember, they're powerful because they have propagandized you into wanting something, knowing the cost of it, but not appreciating its worth. So most of what you buy costs you a lot, puts you in debt, and they made it easy for people who couldn't pay back the debt to create the debt. Because now you're in debt peonage. You're theirs for the rest of your life. So that's the first thing. So just don't buy anything else unless you absolutely need it. Secondly, simplify your life. Sell off all your old stuff. Unclutter. But I, re I regret to say I've yet to see anyone unclutter. I know someone who can't sell a house and yet they don't need it because they're insecure. So their whole life is Emotional clutter, emotional hoarding. Now, that's a term I created because I started seeing people who are seem reasonable. You have a conversation with them, you know, they seem bright. But then you look closer, you look behind the curtain, and like F. Somersault Set Mon said, the essays, don't look behind the curtain because it was the illusion that you loved and the reality you will hate. 
So people then look behind their own curtain, behind the facade they project, and they don't like what they see. So there's self-loathing, there's depression, there's anxiety. So you have to understand how this works. You can't unclutter your life if you're holding on to a clutter of emotions and reactions and victimizations. So that's important. So get the kind of help you need. Seek out people who are good counselors. Seek out people who are not just there to exploit you, but rather to help you, like a, oh, Dr. Peter Resnick and others. Mitchell Raven is also very good at helping people. Learn to grow your own food indoors and out. Look, what's one of the biggest expenses with one of the highest inflationary statistics upwards 20 30 to 50%? Ping pong the item you buy, food. So why not start growing? Put a lid. If you've got a backyard, if you've got a roof, if you've got tenants that want to work together, that's great. And if you live in the suburbs, you've got a backyard, use it for food, hydroponics, aquaponics, sprouts. That's one way. But the best way of all is to buy yourself a smaller freeze dryer. Now, I have three big commercial ones. They were about $5,000 each. They take about 33 to 36 hours to dry something. But you get these bags and you put your food in. And once it's dried overnight, it's good for the next 25 to 30 years. Now imagine that you take a cupboard or you take a garage or you take a basement, you build some shelves, and then take an item, breakfast items, lunch, dinners, because you can make a dish, freeze dry it. And it doesn't lose its taste, its flavor and freshness and its nutrients. So over a period of time, you buy things at cost or wholesale, and then you freeze dry them. In a year or two, you could have enough food that you didn't have to buy another item for the rest of your life. And then you can also market those. So that's important. In fact, I'm going to bring someone in. I'm going to be interviewing people, or rather Luann's going to interview them because they're down at the villa. And uh, because I see that as the future. Because then they don't have control over you. You have control over you. So try to liquidate as much as you can to lower your overall debt. A lot of people don't like giving anything up. Well, look at it this way. Most of what we're conditioned to purchase, we think we need. We don't. We may want it. We don't need it. And what is the value of it? I don't buy anything at retail. I negotiate. That's one of the reasons I give my own audience huge discounts on different things, because I know a lot of people in that audience wouldn't be able to afford it if not. So negotiate. And negotiate based on what something is worth to you. You know the value only when it's a value to you. So don't buy a lot of junk because there's no value in selling it. You buy an average car, you drive it off the lot, you lost 30%. Also, I'm going to suggest that you can contact a debt service to consolidate all your debts with the hope of lowering the amount of interest and lowering them out. Because some of these companies, they're legitimate companies, and you've got to do your homework because they're not all legitimate. Some will take advantage of you. But some of these companies are able to take 
let's say $80,000 or $60,000 or $50,000 and negotiate with your credit card companies and say, I don't know what they say, but I'm sure they say something effective. This is all this person can afford. So you're not going to get any more money out of them. So this is the amount you can get if you let them pay it off now. These companies buy debt. They buy it for five, ten cents on the dollar. So if you give them half of that, they're happy and you've got rid of the debt. So do whatever you can to get out of debt, but make sure that these debt service companies, you don't pay them. That's a big red flag if they ask for it. They get a percentage, a legitimate percentage, just like a lawyer that wins a class action lawsuit generally gets somewhere in the neighborhood of 33% plus expenses, but at least the people who uh, won the case, they also get something too. So that way you can get rid of a lot of your debt. Also, I'm suggesting at this moment, if things change, I'll tell you, but I would not buy any property at this moment. I wouldn't buy anything at this moment. I'm going to wait at least till the next 24 months before I would consider buying something, and only only once the market goes down to a reasonable price because it's been just screaming to get higher in cities like San Francisco and New York, you see the cost of a condominium or a co-op, and the rentals are right behind it. But now, here's the phenomena. In a lot of places in America, there's a big drop in the value of real estate because people are not going to spend 8% on the mortgage. So the mortgage is too high. People were buying when it was 1%. Not now, unless they're foolish, because with the exception of places where the very rich want to be, like Malibu and uh, some of the buildings in New York, but all this was overinflated. Everybody was pushing the dollar up, the value up, and then it crashes down. Wait until it crashes down, and it is going to crash. The real estate market is going to take a big hit, bigger than in 2008. So I suggest you be patient. Then shift your savings and checking to local uh, savings banks and loan banks and look first at what do they have? What are they, what's their reserves against their uh, outstanding loans? The big banks make stupid loans all the time. They don't know what the hell they're doing. These economists are idiots, in my opinion. They didn't see, they didn't see the 2008 coming. We did, and I told you about it before it happened. And uh, Rubini, an economist, did, and Joseph uh, Stiglitz, as some did, but 99% didn't. So uh, there, and by the way, they, these are people who generally don't live along and among the average persons. They don't see a reality. But you have a reality, and it's unique to you. Look at the reality you're living with, because that's really, that should allow you to say, you may be doing all right, but I'm not. So I'm not going to follow your lead. Stay away from any institution that engages in exotic investments. Go towards credit unions, but check out the credit union. How much in reserve do you have? How many outstanding loans do you have? How many of those loans are delinquent? Car loans are delinquent at a higher rate than ever before. That's where you put your money. Start investing in what is a value. Gold, real, uh, silver, those are a value. Those will be those are manipulated to keep them in check at around $2,000 more or less for gold and around $23 to $24 for silver per ounce. That'll all radically change when the dollar drops. 
the day the dollar drops, you're going to see gold and silver go through the roof, in my opinion. Follow the BRICS economy. Keep up to date on their investments, how they're growing, especially in manufacturing. Green your home and apartment to reduce energy costs. The biggest thing you could do, in my opinion, if you own a house and you've got a condo and you've got a mortgage and you've, you know, you've unfortunately borrowed against your equity, because remember, when you have bought a house for 200000 it's not worth 300000 okay, you got $100,000 in equity there. That gives you enough money. I would sell the house. Because when you sell the house, you're also getting rid of the all the property taxes, the leasehold improvements, all the other costs, the electric, your gas, everything else that goes into owning a home. Upkeep. Instead, buy yourself a high-quality used RV. Why? Because, first of all, you can be anywhere you want. If you don't like what's going on with mandates in New York State, then move to Florida or Texas or South Dakota or Montana. There's right now America's divided ideologically, politically, environmentally. And I would stay away from Texas. I'd st- excuse me. I'd stay away from most of Texas because the water's not there. But I would stay away from California completely, uh, Oregon, even though they keep claiming that East Oregon isn't like Portland. And they're together. Well, it's still the, whatever's mandated is mandated state level. Doesn't matter where you live. Same way in New York. You know, you could be living at the end of a, a dirt road that's ten miles long, backed by a state park. But if they mandate vaccines, which they're likely to do now, then someone's going to come knock on your door, no matter where you're at. So if you don't like the quality of life, if it's diminished, if safety is a problem, unlike when we grew up, where character was important. Values were important. Morality was important. Manners was important. Today, for a lot of people, those don't count at all. It's just the me generation. By the way, I did a whole discussion on my classroom on the air today, about 40 minutes on, it was titled, Young People Beware, The Dangers of Success. And I did a whole 40 minutes on just what makes success so dangerous and tempting at the same time. How you destroy your family, friends, yourself, the more successful you become. So every step you go up in success, the quality of your judgment is reduced by one measure. If you buy an RV, buy it from a reputable place. And that way you know you can that has service contracts, and uh, they give you all these different parks you can go to, but you can go anywhere in America you want. The best engine, in my opinion, is a Mercedes engine, and uh, the diesel in particular. Those things last for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles, and they cost less to drive and get solar on the roof. So all of the, everything about it runs inside, your air conditioner, your stove, your refrigerator, on solar power. And that's important. So there's a whole lot you can learn about RVs. Do your homework before you buy one. Never buy a new one because the moment you drive off the lot, you've lost probably 30% of its value. Buy a low mileage, low under 20,000 miles, use one. Because a lot of people buy an RV and find out it was too small. They want a bigger one. They take it back. And they get a trade-in, and then you got the advantage of a low, a low mileage 
but newer RV with all the warranties and guarantees. Therefore, you can go anywhere you want, and you're free. No mortgages, because you used the equity in your sale to pay off cash, the RV, so nobody can repossess it. Also, adopt alternative forms of transportation. Always have a bike, carpool, power walk. Cut the bills that you don't need. Look around your house. How many bills do you not need? How many things don't you need? Cut them out. Uh, and also, try to create a separate income source. You can, If you have the rooms, you have some guest rooms, turn them into an Airbnb, earn an extra income. Turn your hobbies, if they are applicable, into income ventures. For example, I remember a woman uh, coming to an opening of a physician in New York who was having a grand opening to a big center, uh, about 14,000 square feet. And I was there as the friend of the person who was owning it. And I was just watching all the people socialize. And this mom comes over and says, oh, you know, I listen to your show and, and uh, I'm helping myself with my health, but I'm leaving a job. Do you have any suggestions? And I said, do you like to cook? She said, I love to cook. Uh, and I said, well, do you know how to do vegan cooking? She said, I'm a vegan. I said, okay. Do you live near the Upper West Side? I live on the Upper West Side, 93rd Street, Weston Avenue. Small apartment, but that's where I live. I said, all right, why don't you do this? Why don't you master some really good dishes, like a hundred different dishes from different cuisines, Italian, Jewish, because you have a lot of Jewish people on the Upper West Side, and uh, a lot of professionals, and they don't frequently have time to cook and go shopping, so they eat out. But also, make yourself a private uh, private chef. You can do it per day, where you can cook all the meals in one day, and then freeze them for them. All they have to do is just warm them up, and start by charging $40, $50 an hour, and then go up from there. And she was taking notes and asked me questions. I didn't see her again for 10 years. And now she's one of the most famous home chefs in America, making like $150 an hour. She's bringing in some serious money. And that's good. That's where you take a hobby and you turn it to where you can earn income from it. Now, you can do the same thing with freeze-drying. It's just you have to have enough of an inventory to offer people. And if you can't afford the freeze dryer, now mind you, I have a big commercial one. You can buy smaller ones for about $2,000. But it's going to last a long time. Or if that's too expensive, buy a dehydration unit. They're several hundred dollars. Now, they can't dry as much food and they don't freeze dry. But hey, dehydrated fruits and vegetables, you can uh, do that for yourself. You could have a whole survival kit that you could last uh, right now. If I didn't have another piece of energy, my, my energy sources here, my digging my own wells for water and purifying that water through reverse osmosis and building concrete, uh, concrete barriers so that they're not going to be impacted by hurricanes or anything else. So I have electricity, I have water, I have three years worth of food. You can do the same. You just have to be very patient. 
You could also, I just went to the farmer's market. Now, everyone that I met in that far, farmer's market had a different career at one time until about 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, when the, uh, when the, the great subprime crisis hit. A lot of them were doing well and lost their jobs. So one guy has a stand, really nice stand, and he has packages, different types of dried food that he dries himself in a home dryer. Uh, like he'll have wild salmon, and like it, it's dried up to about four ounces, but it came from a pound, and he sells it for $24. And people are just buying off the shelf because they want to give those treats to their dogs or cats. He has all kinds of different things he dries, but always for pets. And uh, he's thriving. So I just stood to the side, and I bought one of them because I have, I have dogs and cats. I thought it would be a nice treat for him. I said, how well are you doing? He said, we're doing better than what I anticipated. I've got to get a bigger machine now. And I says, how many people come here? He said, oh, about 100. All right, so he's making over 1000 bucks, And that's not bad. Hydroponics sell at farmer's markets. Pickling is a huge profit. You're pickling cucumbers. So you get organic cucumbers, open up a wholesale account, and uh, get them from a distributor. And then you pickle them. Easy to pickle. You can pickle them. They become, go from a cucumber to a pickle about three weeks. You can do sauerkraut. You can do a whole line of pickled items. In fact, when I was last in Dallas, went to the farmer's market, they had there a table. Now, interesting, where I live, the small community on the west coast of Florida, where I have my animal sanctuary, every single booth is very creative. But down in Texas, every single booth is just like as sterile as it can be. I mean, a guy comes in from Louisiana. He doesn't even live in Texas, but Louisiana and Arkansas and East Texas are all kind of one area. So he drives in. It's a four-hour drive. And he sells organic produce. And my God, it's wilted. It, he didn't even brush the dirt off of it. And he lays that on this table, and he sells a couple thousand dollars worth. And I said, friend, you do know that you've got to dip those radishes and that arugula into ice water and then spin it so it takes the field heat out and that'll last a week fresh. No. <laughs> oh, if people only did their homework. So pickling you can do, fermenting you can do. You can make all kinds of fermented foods. And of course then, once again, do cooking. Now, there's a woman in our audience. Her name is Diane. And I first met Diane when I did a fundraiser for KPFK out in Los Angeles, where I was for 34 years. And I did it six hours on Wednesday night with my buddy Roy of Hollywood. And uh, Roy passed this past year. And a uh, wonderful human being. He was in his 80s. Well, they wanted me to raise some money for the station. I said, fine. And we decided to premiere a new film. And uh, they found a location that I didn't even know exist. It's right off Sunset Boulevard. You start driving in a circle up this hill, and you're way up on top of the hill. And then suddenly you see the whole, the whole valley. And it's an old Franciscan uh, place that was turned into a, a school. So really beautiful architecture. And uh, so anyhow... Uh, they didn't, unfortunately, this is Pacifica, so nobody counted how many people were actually showing up. So the 700 people that would fit in their theater 
that was packed. I remember the head of Pacific at the time, uh, Summers, came over and says, Gary, what are we going to do? We have all these people who came. And so I said, give me the bullhorn. So I went outside and I told everyone, um, we've got a packed house. However, we're going to have a second showing. I'm going to do a lecture for you all after that as well. So do this. Uh, why don't you grab yourself something to eat? And this guy said, I, I didn't bring any money. I said, not a problem. I'll pay for it. So all these people had showed up. Who organized them? I don't know. Maybe it was just self-organizing. But there must have been 30 of them. And they all had all this food. And knowing that I'm a vegan, it was all vegan. Really good stuff. And so I told everyone, uh, the food's on me up to $10. All right? Because I, I didn't have a lot of cash on me. And, uh, but anyhow, the person who was helping also, and she was giving discounts to people, very nice. Her name was Diane. And uh, Diane, uh, really into health, very spiritual. And I remember because uh, she, was, she put out the best food that day. Turns out, years later, Diane is now working as a private chef, vegan chef, and doing well. She's harmonized her passion, her health, with people who can appreciate that. And she makes a lot of money. So that one group left and another group came in and uh, people who were cooking ran home. <laughs> How much time do we got? I said, you got about two and a half hours. So when everyone came out, there was a whole bunch of new food for them. Again, that's something you can do. In fact, at the farmer's market, the two biggest lines, I mean long lines, about 50 people in each one, at that moment I was there, one was for popcorn. You know those uh, Caribbean uh, drums that uh, they, you know, they play on and uh, they're kind of dipped? And so one was making popcorn in them, caramel popcorn, and then Cajun popcorn, and they were selling for $8 a bag. cost about 35 cents. But the other one was putting in their uh, Indian rice, which is regular rice uh, with, uh, with some herbs, turns it orange, saffron, and then they had a choice. You could get it with vegetables and tempeh, or you can get it with fish. They had like three different things. And, but they were $20 for a full meal. And I said to the guy, I says, you're doing great. What an original idea. He said, yeah, he said, I used to work in a bank till I lost my job and uh, when they cut back, but I love this more. And we serve about 200 customers a Saturday morning. So I'm thinking, that's 4,000 bucks. That's a lot of money. So just be creative. The jobs are there if you create them and create something people want. Also, you got to get a permit for that. Basements, attics, adjacent buildings. If you choose to, instead of paying out money, have an income source to offset that. Become active in local cooperative community projects. Be willing to relocate. That's one of the most difficult things in the world. When I went back to my family reunion, or not my family reunion, my school reunion, uh, about two and a half years ago, I got in early and I walked the streets for five hours. That meant I, small town, I walked in every street, every block. Ten years ago, I took my camera crew there just to show what life was like in a typical 
you know, American small city. And it was just, it was just Andy Hardy style with the lawns and the picket fences. It was just wonderful. And saying hello to people that I knew as a child who were now in their 90s. And uh, this time, the entire city was a ghetto. The entire city. And that night when I saw my classmates, one of them's sons, chief of detectives, and I said, Aaron, I said, uh, Aaron Davis, one of my best buddies growing up, and I said, Aaron, what happened? And then he told me about the drugs. And people come in from uh, Ohio and other places because it's cheaper there and they're not going to get arrested because, you know, it's, uh, it's the way the law works now. He said, but I said, I went up by the White Star Laundry. And by the way, the White Star Laundry was the largest laundry in West Virginia when I was growing up. It was one block away from where I lived. And a bunch of us kids would go up there and the women working there would throw, you know, candy out the window to us. And I guess all the hospitals and the hotels and, and people would take their laundry there and they'd do it very cheaply and very nice. But then it closed uh, because that was no longer something that was viable. But then a friend of mine, John uh, Latopoulos, uh, who lived a block away and was head of drama at my high school, he created a drama club there. So all these people could, and we were always packed, people come and watch different plays, the man who came to dinner, etc. cetera. Uh, and it was just one of the wonderful things you can do in a small town when you get together and organize. And that became the, the Actors Guild. Well, there it was closed, but in that little entrance to the building, there were all these drug addicts, and the whole place, it looked like someone put a, a case of cigarette butts on the floor. And and I asked him, where did you come from? Why are you here? What are you doing? You know, what's wrong in your life? And they were talking, they were very open, and, and I felt honest. And uh, you feel compassion for people who are this far down and out, because as hard as it is for you to imagine some of these people are choosing this. Many don't. This is just the consequence of bad choices. But in any case, the entire town was now a ghetto. The streets that used to have beautiful homes on them, not mansions, but beautiful homes. Sidewalks torn up, no grass, no flowers, buildings with no, you know, homes with no paint, paint peeled off. It was just, it was so sad. So I ran an ad in the paper. I was willing to help the city come back if people wanted to. Nobody did. In any case, it's one thing that you can do is to start to look at life and say where are the best places to live. Because most of the people who stayed to this day but haven't done anything are the adaptive, supportive life energies. Now, I won't go into that now. We don't have time. But these are the people that they're with you for life. If you're a friend, they're a friend for life. But change scares them, and they'd rather die in where they grew up than to move someplace. They're the ones who, if you say, friend, there's a Category 5 hurricane coming, and it's, they're predicting a 14-foot swell, and your house is right at sea level, so your entire house is going to be destroyed. Well, we'll rebuild. And you think, how can you not get out of harm's way? But that's one of the reasons people refuse to move, even when they're in a disaster area, because they're almost genetically tied 
energy-wise tied to a given space. In any case, find the best places in America to live. For example, uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, if you want to, to look at some of the best cities to live in, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, Boulder, Colorado, Sarasota, Florida, Naples, Florida, um, Charlotte, North Carolina, Colorado Springs, Fayetteville, Arkansas, Madison, Wisconsin, Boise, Idaho, and Arbor, Michigan. And a sustainability site called Livability, Flowermont, Texas. Who ever heard of that? Broomfield, Colorado, Carmel, Indiana, Gary, North Carolina, Overland Park, Kansas, Naperville, Illinois, Troy, Minnesota, Clinton, New Jersey, Sandy, Utah, Beaverton, Oregon. And the most affordable places to live, if you're a working class person or on a retirement fund or limited income, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Wichita, Kansas, Rapid City, South Dakota, Iowa City, Manchester, New Hampshire. Wonderful places. If you're looking for safety, the safest areas in the United States are New Hampshire, Vermont, Mid-Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And which cities have the worst crime? Democratic-controlled cities. If you want health, Hawaii, Michigan, and Colorado. For the economy, if you want to make the most income and be in a highly, let's say, commercialized environment, Massachusetts, Texas, Colorado, Utah, Washington, and Wisconsin. For best climate preparedness, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Minnesota, Virginia, Colorado. So now let's, with five minutes to go, let's just summarize this. See if we got it right. The people in charge of our lives are there and using that power in a way that we're told is for our betterment. So ask yourself, at this point in your life, how much better off are you? In every area, do you have less debt? And how much of the debt you have is because you were motivated, propagandized, convinced to buy something that in reality you shouldn't have. You didn't need it. Or you were paying more than what you should have. How well are, off are you as far as your health? If you get sick, will all of your bills be paid? They should have. If we had voted for Ralph Nader, I voted for Ralph Nader twice, and then Jill Stein, Rocky Anderson, Knowing I would lose, knowing he probably wouldn't get 5% of the vote, I'd rather vote for someone who is on the right side of truth. Because just imagine, for all of you wise-ass liberals out there, and don't call yourself liberal anymore, because those who of us who are uh, would never, never associate ideologically with any of the stuff you're doing. Okay? Just be aware of that. And stop, stop thinking of Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, because none of that may, it matters anymore. Because now we know who controls everything. BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, and Berkshire Hathaway. They control everything because they own the corporations, and the corporations own the banks. They own the financial institutions. They control all the laws. And so every time you rely upon a government agency or government announcement to help you, just look back. Did it work or not work? Were there weapons of mass destruction that led to over a million Iraqis losing their lives and a lot of Americans losing their lives? No, they lied. How about Vietnam? No, they lied. How about how about 9-11? We weren't told the truth. Now, how about all the Obama's 
drone program that took out 90% of the civilians by the thousands, all told, and was never criticized for it. Since when is that a good idea? Well, that's the way it works. Because if you control the narrative, you control people's perception of reality. So you alter the reality, and therefore you're blameless. So we've got to get to where we get off the grid completely, as much as you humanly can. Don't listen to the Hannity's and the Rachel Maddow's and don't read the New York Times because you're being propagandized by people who, in my personal opinion, even if they knew the truth, would be challenged to give it because think of the millions of dollars each year they're paid. Why they really paid that amount? Because they're great broadcasters? Hardly. They do original research, do great commentaries? Not at all. Because they're the, voc they're the, the opinion leaders of the official policies. So it doesn't matter whether you drink a lemonade, a Coca-Cola, or, or a root beer, they own the companies. It doesn't matter whether you get a drug from Pfizer or from uh, Johnson & Johnson, they own interest in the companies. It doesn't matter where you bank, they own that, except they don't care about credit unions, small town credit unions, that are probably the most conservative financially and the most trustworthy. Wherever you're at, join cooperatives, join electrical cooperatives, Get off the grid. So then one day you ask yourself, is it safer now than it was? No, it is not. Not in the places where people in power control it. The places I mentioned, it is safer. Going to rural America is safer, especially if you're in a, in a red state. Are you being given the best opportunity to grow? No. The only value you have is how obedient you are and how much you're willing to spend. And if you're a person that just looks forward to that Black Friday and if you have to climb over someone's back to get in the door to get that flat screen TV to put in your bathroom because all the other walls are covered in flat screen TVs, well, then you won't mind the person you walk on and they die because you're disconnected from the real world. You're in their world. And their world's not a good place. They promise it is, but it's not. Las Vegas, in my opinion, is just its an embarrassment of excess. But so is Disneyland. It's all about making money from you. So stop giving them your money. Stop giving your vote. Stop listening to them. Listen to yourself. Do your homework. Join others. If you do that, then that, uh, that debt clock's not going to impact you because you're not going to be lining up to pay off their derivatives and their equity partnerships. You're going to say, no, I got, I got my own way here. And myself and some other people have joined together, and we're just going to do fine. We're going to live a longer life because we're not eating your genetically administered food. We're not taking your vaccines. We're not doing what you tell us to do because we're no longer obedient Pavlovian dogs in human form. When you ring the bell, we salivate and rush for the food bowl. If this makes sense to you, good. Share it with others. If it doesn't, well, tomorrow I'll have different information to share with you. Have a nice day, everyone. Thank you for listening.